you ever come across a passage of the Bible uh, where it's just weird? You, 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 like, if you read it, perhaps, or hear about it, you just feel like, this doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it just doesn't seem to fit, doesn't seem to fit with what... <clears throat> You know God to be, perhaps, or you think God is. It just is. It's just weird. Um, it's easy to skip passages like that. It's easy to skip stories and accounts, and it's easy to skip that stuff. And it's real easy not to preach about. It. As a preacher, it's real easy not to preach that stuff. Just move on to something else. Uh, the first part of Acts five is one of those passages. It's just weird. Uh, it doesn't seem to fit. Uh, it, 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 we really don't want it to fit. It would be a lot easier if it weren't in the Bible. But for some reason, as Luke was compiling the, the accounts that would comprise the, what we, re, we read as the book of Acts, he, he chose to make sure that it was there. And, and the only reason I can think that he chose to make sure it was there that is, is for complete transparency. Uh, about God, about us, it, because it's it, it's nothing. There's nothing in the first part of Acts chapter five that um, that would make someone say, "Hey, I want to be a part of what God's doing there." And, and so I think, and part of it is just an effort, complete complete transparency. This is this is who God is. Like wrestle with it. You know, you know, God doesn't need our protection. Like, God doesn't need us to, to, to protect the world from the things that are difficult to understand about him and his work and his way. He didn't need us to protect. And so the Bible includes um, not just all the good things and the happy things about God and his, and his kingdom, but, but some stuff we've got to wrestle through. And Acts chapter 5 is part of that. But uh, before we get to Acts chapter 5, I, I want to kind of set the context of, 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 of what's leading into Acts chapter 5. And so the very last part of Acts chapter 4, the last few verses, I want you to understand the attitude and the priority and the single-mindedness and the heart of this, of this first church in Jerusalem. This is what the Bible says. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. The Bible says that they were of one heart and one mind. They're united in thought. They're united in purpose. They're united in the priority of the kingdom over all things. The old adage goes like this. When everybody's rowing the boat, there's no one left to rock it. And God places a high, places a high priority in the unity and single-mindedness of his people and his church. And he will not contend with disunity. 
And when his people are united in heart and soul, in mind and purpose, in the priority of the kingdom, God steps into that unity and does miraculous, marvelous things. But where his church is divided, when his church is divided, he can't and chooses to not do anything. And so unity is a high priority in the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, the Bible says in counseling the first church and the leaders of the first church, when there is a brother or sister within the church who refuses to be corrected, who is causing disunity, warn them once, warn them twice, and kick them out. So the Bible says, send them to the Lutheran church. They got all their own stuff there. So it's just... And so it places such high priority on unity. And we see that in the first church. And they didn't consider their own property their own. In other words, it's not like it wasn't theirs to possess. What it means is it wasn't theirs only to enjoy. It was theirs to be shared. And this was part of the attitude of this first church. Verse 33 says there were two great things. There was great, what? Power and great grace. That word great in the Greek is mega. So you all understand what we're talking about. Like this was mega. There was mega power and there was mega grace. And in the context of the mega power because of the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus and the mega grace that was a part of them all, there's a result that flows out of that. There's a result for the disciple of Jesus that flows out of the mega power because of the testimony of the resurrection and the mega grace that God bestows on his people. And and the result of that are generous disciples. There's no way you can get around it in the New Testament. The result of the mega power and the mega grace and the realization of that is it results in mega generous disciples. And let me just say this right up front. If your discipleship has not led to mega generosity, you have to question whether you've experienced the mega power and mega grace of God. Because that's the reality of the first church. That's why I said, uh, I don't know if we're ready to go through Acts. There's so much implication here for us. Look what the Bible says. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each, uh, to, uh, to, to each as any had need. Let me just stop right there for a minute. They owned property. They owned possessions. This, we're not talking about communism. Communism was when the government says, you own it, I now take possession of it, and I give it to whoever I want to. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about communism. We're talking about communism. We hold it in common. And it's my stuff God's given me. I have possession of it. And under my volition, I can choose to keep it or sell it. And under my volition or choice, I can choose to give it or hoard it. That's what we're talking about here. And so what they did is they, some people sold some of their possessions and laid it at the apostles' feet to take care of each other. Now, please understand, they weren't running a food bank for the entire city of Jerusalem. They, they didn't have a food pantry for everybody and a housing ministry and a clothing ministry for everybody. They just took care of themselves, those who were a part of their number. 
And so those who were part of their number had no need. Why? Because these great disciples who experienced the mega power and the mega grace were mega generous. Do you understand? You understand? Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This guy, Joseph, what was his nickname? Barnabas. Bar Nabas. Bar means son of, Nabas encourager, encouragement. So he got this nickname, son of encouragement. Okay, he was encourager. His name, we're going to read about him a lot as we go through the book of Acts. But notice, what was Levite? Or what, what, was, Bar, what was Joseph? He was a Levite. Why is that important? He's of the tribe of the Levites. And the Old Testament law said that the Levite, the, the tribe of Levite could not own property in Israel. They, they, when God was apportioning the property in Israel to the ancestral tribes, everybody got a part of the land of the promised land except for the Levites. The Levites were not to own land. God said, I will be your portion. You don't need a portion of the land. I will be your portion. So here's a Levite as a landowner. But the point is, he's a Levite from where? So apparently, he owned land in Cyprus, not in Israel. And as a believer who's experiencing the, 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 the mega power and the mega grace of God, considers himself and the grace God's been given him and shown him and being a landowner in a different land and says, I'm going to take a part of that land, sell it, and bring it to these people here. Mega generous. The interesting thing to me in this right here with Barnabas is his, he, he is the son of what? Encouragement. So he's an encourager. That's his nickname. His encouragement is not tied to the words of the high fives. His encouragement is tied to his generosity. I don't know if you've ever realized that before. It's not that Barnabas that Joseph walked around, hey, high five, you look good, man. Hey, how you doing? Hey, good job last night. Hey, you get a high five. You get a high five. Like one of those encouragers. His encouragement is tied to his generosity. See, he viewed his resources as a means to encourage the church. Don't miss this. His nickname flowed out of the use of his resources. I wonder, what would be our nickname if the same held true for us today? What would your nickname be? Let me help you understand how the Bible views resources and generosity. Philippians 4, verses 15, 16, and 17. Paul is writing to the Philippian church. And he's going to tell them, look, thank you for your partnership with me in ministry. But here's the important thing about what you've done. Look at what he says. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, he says, when you were first starting to believe, your young church, your first time, you're starting to understand this mega power and this mega grace of God. When I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. 
Like of all these churches that I've been associated with, they were all stingy. But you were pretty generous. Look at what he says. For even when I was in Thessalonica with that church, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. He's saying, thank you. You're very generous. I appreciate it. But it's not your gift for me that I desire. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Let me unpack this for you. What he's saying here is God is keeping his own ledger and accounting books based on our giving and generosity. He's keeping his own record. A record of our giving, a record of our generosity is being held on the heavenly account books. And your account is accumulating. Every time, you, every time you're generous, your heavenly account accumulates. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I appreciate your generosity, but what I desire most is that your account be credited. Do, do you see this? He says, your, your generosity right now is a blessing, but there's an etern eternality attached to it. And I want your, your account to be credited throughout eternity. Did you realize that God is recording your giving? And God is rewarding your giving? And the great thing about this is that it's not about amount at all. It's simply about sacrifice. And we cannot get away from this New Testament church that these great disciples experiencing the great power and the great mercy of God were greatly generous. You just can't get away from it. I mean, the church knew about Joseph's generosity so much, it was from that that he derived his nickname. You know, I was thinking about this earlier, and I thought, I don't know if I'm going to talk about this part. But, but there's, a, there's so much secrecy in the American church about finances. There's so much secrecy in the American church about our giving. So much so. I mean, I mean, just think about it. How would you feel if we just opened up the books of everybody's giving for everybody to see? And, and the, and the re I mean, I understand there's, a, there's, there's tension to that. And I understand that we attach a lot of Bible verses to the secrecy of our giving. And there's a passage in Matthew 6 that some people quote that, you know, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And so it's supposed to be secret. I understand that. But what, what most people don't understand is that a chapter before in chapter 5, it says, let your good deeds and your generosity be seen before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. And so the issue, the issue is not knowledge. The issue is pride. The issue is pride. Like if I do good or give, and make sure everybody knows so that they'll think highly of me. The Bible says, I've already received my reward. But the Bible says, people should see our good deeds and should see our generosity so that it brings glory to him, not to me. Jesus told the story of the little old lady who gave her last mite half cent in the offering. And he said, what she's given had nothing to do with amount, had to do with sacrifice. What she's given was more than all these other guys who gave a ton of money. How did he know how much they give if it weren't public? 
So the issue is not knowledge. The issue is pride. And that's what we're going to see in Acts 5. And that's why I have to set the stage of this so you understand why Acts 5 went down the way Acts 5 went down. Let's look at this. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Okay, so this tells us right now that this is tied back to the end of Acts 4. Joseph sold a piece of property, took all the money from that sale, gave it to the apostles, and just for the, he trusted them and said, you distribute it as you, as you feel the, the, the church needs it. Now also a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So it's the same context. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put at the apostles' feet. So Ananias and Sapphira, obviously, they know the gift and generosity of Joseph because they know Joseph got the nickname Barab, or, uh, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, because of the results of his generosity. And they obviously are seeing how honored Joseph is amongst the church people. Not that Joseph is the glory hound or prideful or arrogant or anything like that, but they're just seeing like, hey, that was super generous, man. That's amazing. I, I wish I could give like that. You know, we've been there, right? And, 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 I, I, and I, I truly believe that Anna and Sapphira really do want to be generous. They're like most of us. I mean, most of us would say, I wish I could give more. I wish I could be more generous. I wish I had more. To All of us have been there, yeah? But there's also this other element of Ananias and Sapphira that was really, really, really prideful. Because what they wanted is just not the opportunity to be generous and the ability to be generous. What they wanted was the honor of the people being seen as generous. There was that element of pride. Watch how this goes down. This is not an encouraging passage of Scripture. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. What was the lie? Was the property his to sell? Yeah. Did he sell the property? Yeah. Did he want to give money to the church? Yeah. What was the lie? Notice Peter's words. The property was yours. It was your decision to sell it or keep it. We, we, we didn't care. And, and the money from the sale was yours to do with what you wanted. You could have done anything with it. You were under no compulsion. You were under no command. You do whatever you wanted to with the money. We weren't asking for it. We weren't putting thermometers upon the wall so we could build a fountain. Like, we weren't doing any of that. He said, you could give her, and you got, he said, you got to choose how much you gave. Completely at your discretion. The lie was how much you claimed to sell it for. And the lie was that you claimed that you gave it all. When you didn't give it all. See, they wanted people to believe that they were generous like Barnabas. When they weren't. That was the lie. 
they posed as being mega generous because they wanted people to think better of them. Listen, if you want to be mega generous, great, be mega generous. Um, if you're not, don't pretend like you are. It's real simple. Like, be honest with yourself and with, and with others and make sure that you don't pose as if you're a real generous person when you're not. Just Because ultimately, you're not posing to other people. You're posing to God. And so if, you know, you want to be here and not contribute much at all or anything and you just want to sit and get, that's your prerogative. Just don't pretend like you're a generous person to the kingdom or to this church. Do you see how this would be better if it wasn't in the Bible? <laughs> it just does. I mean, watch what happens. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. <laughs> and great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. He had no doubt. Then some young men came forward, wrapped, his uh, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Done. Now listen, that seems really harsh to us, but don't, don't feel too sad. He woke up in heaven. He just got there faster than what he thought he was going to. And honestly, now just think about it. It had to have been such a relief because he knew he was lying. He knew he was a poser. He knew he was acting more generous and sacrificial and righteous than what he was. And he knew, he knew that the judgment of God was going to fall on him. And all of a sudden, he's like, I'm sorry, hey. And he wakes up in heaven like, ah, I made it. Like, whoo. I, I got to imagine at some point, he's like, you know what, Jesus, thank you, because I was on pretty shaky ground there for a little while. I was going down a pretty dark road, so thank you for intervening and getting me here. Let's not, yeah. But all of a sudden, he wakes up dead. I'm so thankful that this, Acts 5, is the exception, not the rule. Yeah? Yeah. Because if this were the rule, we would be filled with great fear. Right? If this were the rule, we'd be having a lot of funerals. I'd have to find someone to do mine. But, but one of the things, reasons I think this is here is so we don't lose sight of the holiness of God. And we don't lose sight of the seriousness of sin. Don't lose sight of the holiness of God. He is not to be trifled with. And don't lose sight of the seriousness of sin. It is not to be toyed with, though we like playing with it. And it is only by the mercy and grace of God that I and you are not destroyed. Because His holiness does not waver. 
nor does he wink at sin. And sometimes I think there's passages like this, just so we know what God has in his back pocket in case he needs to lay it down on the table. There was mega what right up front? Remember? What? Power. Then there was mega grace. And now there's mega fear. There's mega fear. And it's only by the grace of God that posers like me and posers like you are not destroyed. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Where the freak had she been? Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price and, uh, uh, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yeah, that's it. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Three hours, her husband is dead. Three, how does nobody tell this poor girl what happened? And where was she for three? She's that cup of joy, just drinking her Jesus coffee, thanking God for the blessing of the land that they sold and the money she can spend at Sephora. And <laughs> Three hours later, she walks in. When the Bible says both of Ananias and Sapphira that they fell down dead, that is nothing but a supernatural act of God. That, that's what's implied there. It's not that they had a heart attack, they were embarrassed, they were ashamed. It, none of, it was a supernatural act of God that he said, you're done and you're done. This poses a lot of questions, yeah? But I think at the heart of it, we got to realize like God's holiness is not to be trifled with. And sin is not to be toyed with. And then save for the mercy and grace of God, this is the result of every one of us. Great fear sees the whole church and all who had heard about these events. Yeah, no kidding. If this happened one Sunday, would any of you come back the next Sunday? This is not the first time something like this happened. In the biblical record, when, when Luke uses those words, how was it that you kept back some for yourself? The Old Testament it was written in Hebrew. The translation into the Greek is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint records the Old Testament Hebrew in Greek. In Joshua chapter 7 of the Old Testament, God's people are entering into the promised land. And the first big battle they face is the Battle of Jericho. Jericho was a huge city, a mega city. And the people of God were very faithful to his commands and instructions. They go before the Jericho. God tears down the walls, destroys the city, delivers the city into the hands of his people, all at God's volition. God gives them the command, don't keep anything for yourselves. It all belongs to me. A man named Achan... She's a beautiful robe. 
whatever, into fashion. And he uh, saw a, a bar of gold and some silver. And he took it. And he buried it. The next battle there go to face a little place called Ai. It's a lot like Riverdale. Like, who cares about it? And, and so they're like, they're like, we don't have to take the whole army. This is going to be a cakewalk for us. So they go to face Ai, and Ai destroys them, just wipes, annihilates them. And they're like, what the freak, man? Like, we should have, like, rolled these boys. Uh, and God says through the way God does it, hey, because one of you, you done messed up, eh, Ron? And so... And so this process God goes through to discover it was Achan that he had kept back some of the things that were supposed to be given to God. And the Bible goes so far as there was the robe and then he buried the gold and then put the silver underneath the gold. Why, why did he bury it that way? What's the most important? What's the most valuable? Why wouldn't you put the gold on the bottom? Look how deceitful this cat is. The robe, the gold, because you know, if you're looking for stolen stuff, once you find the gold, you figure that's the most important, it's at the bottom. So they stop digging. So he keeps the silver underneath it. So at least he walks away with silver. So deceitful. And so when the Bible in the Old Testament uses the Hebrew word, you kept back the Septuagint, translates that in the Greek, the exact same word that Luke uses here in Acts 5. You kept back. And so the hearers of the, those who were there are automatically going back to the Old Testament and the story of Achan. And his deceit. See, what was happening in the Old Testament story of Achan, God was taking his people and entering in them into the world. And he said, before you go into, or, or before you go into the promised land, he said, before you go into the promised land, you need to remember my holiness and the seriousness of sin. Now he's taking his church and they're entering into the world. He said, before my church enters the world, you need to remember my holiness and the seriousness of your sin. And that's why I think Acts 5 is here. It, there's a throwback all the way to the Old Testament. When his people were entering the promised land, now his church is entering the world, and both of them had to remember the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin so that they could be unstoppable. Now let me just deal with this issue of giving real quick because we've got to understand biblically about giving. Here's the deal. If you want to be sacrificial, great. If you don't, don't pretend like you are. Real, three general rules about give, bi biblical giving guidelines. Here it is. The first one is that giving has got to be costly. It doesn't have to be a lot. It just has to be costly, whatever that means. It's not about the amount. It's about the sacrifice. So whatever costly is, that's what it is. And the precedent for it is 2 Samuel 24, 24. David wants to give this offering to the Lord. And he's talking to, King David's talking to King Aruna. And he says, no, I insist on paying for this, which I want to give God, because I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. It has to be costly. I will not be cheap in my offering to God. The second thing giving has to be biblically is it has to be cheerful. Like the, the, the opportunity when you sit down and write out your tithe check at the first of the month, the first uh, uh, that, uh, of your income, the first thing you do, that ought to be the most joyful check you write. And if you don't write checks anymore, that ought to be the most joyful transaction. Like, like <laughs> this is so good. For all he's done for me, I get a sacrifice for the kingdom. This is awesome. 
Matter of fact, the Bible says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. So if you want to be, if you want to be sparingly in what you get from God, just sow sparingly. It's, it's real, it ain't rocket science. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. It's, it's real simple. You want a lot from God in this way? Give a lot to him. It's, it's like, and there's no judgment. He just says, look, you do a little bit, you get a little bit. You do a lot, you get a lot. It's just the way God works. Look at what he says. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. It's exactly what Peter told Ananias. It was yours before you sold it, it's yours after. Right? You just decide in your heart. Not reluctantly or in a compulsion or in order to make yourself look good in front of others. For God loves a what? Cheerful giver. When I was in college, I had this job on campus, uh, and I would walk out of that job. I mean, all the money went to the school. It was a bunch of thieves in higher education. Anyway, so there was occasion where I would get $20, and I would write out a $2 check because that was my 10%. It was $2, and I would mail it to my church in Visalia, and I was so excited to write my $2 check. It was fun. Because I thought, this is so stupid. I'm going to give this big old church $2. It's going to cost them more in their personnel to process this than what I'm paying them. But it was an act of faithfulness and it was cheerful and I loved it. You follow? The third thing is giving should be done as, a, as an internal investment. This is what Paul said. Look, your, your generosity to him, he said, look, I appreciate it, but ultimately, I want your account to get some credit. So you need to do this. A couple more verses. Look at this. The apostle performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together at Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join him. <laughs> you understand why. Even though they were highly regarded by the people. They're like, man, those guys, they got something special going on over there, but I don't, I don't think I want to show up. Why? Because they knew what they were capable of. They saw the power, but maybe they didn't see yet the grace. No one wanted to go to that church. Can you blame them? Imagine if God dealt with us in that kind of dramatic fashion today. Not a great church growth strategy, killing off people. <laughs> but it's interesting. When you, when you look at the Bible, you look at the book of Acts, like up until this point, first four verses, God added, God added, God added. Chapter five, what's God do? Subtracts. This is heavenly math. God adds, God adds, God adds. Then God subtracts. In Acts 6, he's going to multiply. And sometimes for God to multiply in our life, he has to subtract first. Do you understand? The one math thing that God never does is divide. But this is why the fear of God is so important. I'm asking the seniors in, 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 on Wednesday nights to memorize some verses. And one of the verses I'm asking them to memorize is Proverbs 1 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And I think God wants to draw us back to the fear of the Lord. He's not to be trifled with, and sin is not to be toyed with. 
And when you understand that, you are gripped by great fear. And that gripping of great fear is the beginning of knowledge. Now you can start growing. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Like they, they were believing in Jesus. They saw this great stuff. They just didn't want to walk through the church doors. <laughs> and I, I've talked to a lot of people like, yeah, no, I, I don't know if I ever show up to that church. I don't know if the walls will fall in, you know. Like there's this, this starting to be this understanding of the, of the holiness of God. And people are coming to him. And watch this. This is crazy. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick to, and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Healing by Peter's shadow. Later, we're going to read that they took handkerchiefs that Peter touched and gave it to people, and they were healed. The misunderstanding of this has led to a lot of wealth by prosperity preachers as they fly around in their private jets stealing money from widows. What was the significance about the shadow of Peter? Do you see why it's easier just to read past this stuff and not try to figure it out? Listen, th there was this one of them, well, there was this old religious superstition that believed that if the shadow of an evil man touched you, it made you evil. Can you imagine that, trying to dodge everybody's shadow? And the sh if the shadow of a righteous man fell on you, then it made you righteous. So this was this, this crazy religious superstition. That's part of it. But the other part of it is this. What this was, was a touch point for a believing person to release their faith. Had nothing to do with the shadow. It's very similar to the woman suffering the issue of blood, who crawled up behind Jesus and touched the hem of his garment. What was magical about the hem of a garment? Nothing. It was a touch point to release her faith. And then the release of faith, God who acts according to faith, grants healing. There's nothing special about the shadow. There's nothing special about the hymn. There's nothing special about the handkerchiefs that are coming. Other than it's the touch point for someone to say, I believe in the power of God and the person of Jesus. This is how I'm releasing my faith. Look, I know what time it is. Let me just recap real quick. Chapter 5, first few verses. Weird. But there's things we can learn. And we've got to get this right. Generosity is an important part of the Christian community. Generosity is an important part of the local church. And generosity is part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You cannot get away from it. When you enter into the school of discipleship through the Holy Spirit as a disciple of Jesus, when you agree to that, you will be generous. And if you're not yet generous, you've got to do a self-assessment. How much have I opened myself 
to the reformation of the Holy Spirit in my heart. We've got to learn this. Biblical giving should be costly and cheerful and as an eternal investment. We've got to get this. And faith must be acted on in order for it to bring blessing. To say I have faith and to not act on it is dead. It has to be acted on. The last thing we have to remember is God is a holy God who is not to be played around with. And there's a seriousness of consequences of sin and his death. But thanks to the mercy and grace of God, he offers us life because he loves us that much. got it? You got it? I want you to pray with me. I am not at all going to suggest that I know what your next steps are because I don't. It's not for me to know. That's not my job. That's well above my pay grade. The one thing I will say I do know about your next step is if you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, if you've not asked him to forgive your sin, if you've not asked him to be the leader of your life, I do know that is your next step. So in this moment, if you have not done that, I would encourage you in this moment, God loves you so much he is pursuing you. He proved his love by his son dying on the cross for you without you ever believing in him. And I do know for you, your next step is this. God, I'm sorry for my sin. I've chosen to live without you leading my life. Forgive me. Jesus, I believe that you are the only way to God. And in faith, I accept you as the leader of my life today. I do know that is your next step if you've not done that yet, so do that. For those of you who have already done that, my role is not the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you just simply to ask the Holy Spirit, what, what, what is my next act of faith? I want to be a disciple. I want to be following me with my whole heart. What's my next act of faith? I guarantee you, if you ask the Holy Spirit that, if you have a relationship with Jesus, I guarantee you, if you ask the Holy Spirit that, He will respond. You'll know. If you're earnest in your ask, seek and you will find, knock it will be open. If you are earnest in the ask, he will respond. So I exhort you in the name of Jesus right now. Ask the Holy Spirit, what is my next step? What's my step of faith? What's my touch point to release faith?
And whatever he says that is for you, choose to be a disciple and do. Don't let these moments pass you by. Don't build a habit of saying no to the Holy Spirit. Keep your heart pliable as a disciple of Jesus. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide those things that seem indivisible. Holy Spirit, I ask that you speak to us. Those of us who are willing to hear you, I ask you to speak to us. That you would give us this, this, this mega commitment to be a disciple, to follow faithfully. Father, as we do, I pray that you would pour your blessing on those who diligently seek you. We love you. Help us to love you with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. Oh God, may your kingdom come. God, may your will be done on earth in this place as it is done in heaven. In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Pray amen.